else is fearful and fearful and everyone else is greedy, right? Everyone knows that, but the reason that it works is because no one can actually put it into action, right? Because when things get scary or and everybody's fearful, we all rationalize why we shouldn't buy. And that's what you saw in 2010, 11 and 12, like great apartment deals were just like littered all over the ground. You just walk around and you just pick them up. And that was a time to be greedy when everyone was fearful. In 2020 and 21, everybody was in a sense being greedy. Like the demand that for apartments was insatiable. Prices went up dramatically. Properties would get 30 offers. That was people being greedy when they should have been fearful. And so as a buyer, that was the time to be fearful because everyone else was being greedy. We're now getting back to the situation of everybody is fearful. That was Andrew Cushman. And we had a great conversation about investing in the current market, what to watch out for, and then more importantly, what to be excited about. So stay tuned. You're going to love it. The limited partner shares in the potentially outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but as a passive investor and has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. And that is why we're here together. 90% of the millionaires out there built their net worth with real estate. However, 0% of the billionaires are hands-on managing the real estate assets because there simply isn't enough time. My name is Jake Wiley, and for the past 16 years, I've been investing in real estate, and I've learned a thing or two. But the most important lesson is how to leverage the expertise and time of others to maximize your investment potential. Welcome to the Limited Partner Podcast. All right, partners, welcome. We're back for another episode. I've got Andrew Cushman with me this week. And Andrew, I actually found you originally through some of the contributions on Bigger Pockets and the thoughtfulness that you put in there. And I, I think that's, you know, one, it's a great place to go out and learn about investing in real estate. And then two, thank you so much for, you know, spending the time and actually making the contributions on the platform. But welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Scott. It's good to be here, Jake. Well, I'm excited to get into it, but before we get into the meat and potatoes of this conversation, which I think is going to be a really good one, I'd love to give you an opportunity to reach out to the audience and kind of tell them a little bit about you, about Vantage Point, and how you got here. Yeah. You know, I, like so many other people in real estate, I started off as a, as an engineer. When I was in high school, I knew I wanted to do my own thing, but I didn't know what or how to do that. So I figured out if I got a chemical engineering degree, I at least always have a decent job, right? So worked as an engineer after college for seven and a half years. My wife and I discovered flipping in 2007. And so we started doing that here in Southern California, did flipping full-time for four years, had some really good years in 2009 and 10. But we realized that flipping was basically just another full-time job and actually a really hard one. Uh, And so we said, all right, well, what's the next big thing. And we, re- we reasoned that all right, we just had a huge recession, which means we're probably going to have a long expansion, which means job creation, rising incomes, all that. And then everybody in the country either got foreclosed on and can't buy a house for the next seven to 10 years, or they saw all their friends get foreclosed on and they're scared to buy a house for the next seven to 10 years. So that means there's going to be a huge renter pool. So we figured, all right, we should start getting into apartments. So we found a mentor. He held our hand through the first acquisition, which was 92 mostly vacant units out in Macon, Georgia. I would not recommend anyone do that for their first deal. That was back in 2011. And as of today, we are still focused solely on multifamily and we've done a little more than 2,700 units. So, 
Well, that's a really cool story. And I, for those of you that are listening and have listened to the Limited Partner Podcast for a while, you know that Andrew's story and mine line up a lot. Finding, you know, getting into the real estate market right before the big recession and then coming out and flipping. And then, yes, the exact same you know, recollection or I guess dawning is that it is a full-time gig and you're mm -hmm. only as good as your next deal, right? And it's like you just keep moving and it's, you can build wealth, but like if you stop for a, you know, breath, like everything stops. So, yeah. And, then, and unless you're one of these, you know, seven figure flipper guys that builds a company with 20 employees and, you know, people cold, cold, it is, there's, it is the furthest thing from passive that you can get. And it's a lot of work to get to the point where some of those high level guys are. So <laughs> yeah. it's funny. I don't think I've ever shared this story, but I used to be like a bandit sign guy, right? Like when we were in the mix, yeah. like just trying to find deals. Like I was, I'd crafted this long, like PVC pole that had a staple hammer on the end of it with like a rod. And I was able to like, go whack my bandit signs up on telephone poles just high enough where people couldn't just rip them down. You know, <laughs> you know? I, I just, I, this is great. If I, one thing I've always wondered how the heck you guys did that, get those signs so far up on the pole. You know, clearly someone's <laughs> doing it at two in the morning when no one's yeah. around looking. So you're not setting up a big ladder. So I, you know, I, you just solved a longstanding mystery for me. I appreciate that. <laughs> You guess like it's just so funny like how far things have come especially in my life but like i would never look back on that with, you know disdain or i can't believe i did that but like <laughs> driving around in my car with this like 12 foot pole and like the stack of signs and just whacking these things then i think the city finally like came to me and were like if i see another one of your signs you're gonna get a thousand dollar fine each so then i was driving around in my car with the pole whacking the signs off <laughs> yeah but yeah, like, I mean, that's how we got calls, like, you know, finding deals and getting people that were interested in calling you, especially, you know, in a market that was starting to heat back up, which 2010 timeframe, that's how we got into flipping. It was, you know, the market was starting to heat up and it was a great time to be, you know, buying still at a really good price and then picking them up on the, you know, doing a little bit of work to them and then flipping them out. Like it was a lot of fun, but man, it was a ton of work. <laughs> oh yeah, Definitely. Well, let's, well, let's move into today's world because there's, there are some similarities, I think, that you know, as we move into a market and just to kind of timestamp, this is May of 2023. So we're still not sure if the Fed is done raising interest rates, but the debt markets are a mess. They don't look like they're getting any better. The office is a complete disaster, and I think that oh, yeah. still has a, lot, a long way to go and a lot to unpack and how that might impact the market. But Andrew, what's your take? I mean, I know you're really focused on multifamily. What's your take on the current market? Yeah, you know, you, since you mentioned office, I mean, we're seeing class A office towers in San Francisco trade for 70% off of what they were valued at just, you know, two, three years ago. And I think the office market might not just be in a cycle, but it could be in a long-term structural shift, right? Kind of like when the automobile showed up, it didn't just, you know, the horse and carriage industry didn't just go through a cycle. It structurally changed and more eventually kind of went out of business. I don't think office is going to completely go away, uh, but I think it's going to look vastly different for the foreseeable future. In terms of multifamily, you have a little bit different dynamic. People have to have a place to live. 
and we have a long-term structural shortage of affordable housing. So what we're seeing, you know, again, as of May 2023, in, in actual operation, the properties that we can that we control, you know, a good number of our properties have raised rents this spring because we're 100% leased and the demand is higher than the amount of units that we have. And most of our properties are either operating at or near record performance. Now, that's not to say we don't have challenges. One big challenge is that the insurance market has gone ballistic. We just did some renewals where our insurance costs went up 67% in one year. And that's if you can even get insurance. Or we're definitely having to increase wages. So there's a lot of cost pressure there. And then some municipalities are being really aggressive on taxes. So there's not it's not that there's no challenges in multifamily, but overall operations are actually quite good. Uh, you know, and in terms of pricing, yeah, I would say the, you know, markets are, you know, you're very, it's very local, but kind of generalizing a bit. I would say pricing for multifamily is probably off 20 to 30% from the peak, which I would designate as roughly January 2022. But volume is also way off. The last statistic that I heard is transaction volume in multifamily is currently 24% of normal. So that's a pretty dramatic shift. And what's happening is you kind of have two camps is you have the owners and operators and largely newer syndicators that purchased in the last one to three years who used, you know, high LTV floating rate bridge debt, they're in trouble. They're going to be sellers pretty soon. But then you have the longer term operators that either bought earlier or used lower leveraged fixed rate debt. They're all fine. And so what's happening is most sellers are just saying, well, you know what? My property's doing great. It's making good cash flow. And if I sell it, uh, I'm not going to get the price I want. And I don't have anywhere to put the cash because there's no deals out there. So I'm just going to sit on this thing. So the market's kind of at a standstill. I do think volume is going to really pick up by the beginning of 2024. And I don't think we're going to see any kind of real crash because there's a, again, operations are actually pretty good. And there's a ton of capital on the sidelines waiting to jump in. Of course, you know, if rates were to, the Fed says it's on pause, and that probably means cuts are coming by early 24. But if that changes and rates go much higher because of a debt ceiling default or who knows what, then yeah, we could have more downside. So it's an interesting market. Operations are still quite good. And as you mentioned, you know, there are some risks, particularly on the debt side. Yeah, let's talk about debt for a second, because I'd love to get your take on the debt markets, right? So in just recent times, again, kind of time stamping this thing, we've had some pretty significant bank failures, right? So it started with SVB Bank in Silicon Valley. So that's not necessarily a real estate thing, but it's kind of sort of related in terms of what's mm -hmm. happening to their balance sheet. Then you had Signature, and then most recently you had First Republic. So there's a lot of you know regional banks that have been you know major players in the marketplace that have you know been taken over, right? And I think there's statistics out there that you know 190 similar set you know sized banks are in similar situations, right? And I think that what really is interesting is that those same banks are the ones that are typically lending on real estate. So I guess what is your? I might be kind of leading this question, but like, what are your thoughts on the debt market? I think it's going to be 
challenging for the foreseeable future. I don't think it's going to be anything like 2008. You know, one interesting dynamic that's really, I find hard to quantify is, you know, we mentioned the office towers in San Francisco selling for 70% off. And, you know, obviously that's not directly related to multifamily, but it is connected because as you mentioned, the banks that made the loans on those office towers that are now taking significant losses are the same banks in many cases that are underwriting multifamily loans. And so even though their multifamily stuff is probably doing okay, if they start taking huge losses over here in the office segment of their portfolio, then what that does is that causes them to tighten up their lending standards. So they're either going to make less loans or no loans at all. And the loans they do make are going to be at lower LTVs and much higher rates, or they're going to look for ways to call the, their outstanding loans due and get them paid off as they're trying to shore up their balance sheet to make up for what's going on in the office sector. So there definitely is some risk in, you know, candidly that the biggest two risks to multifamily going forward. And this is short term, long term, like five plus years, multifamily looks really good. The fundamentals are very much in favor of multifamily long term. But in the shorter term, you know, now to the next, let's say, call it 24 months, there's interest rate risk and then there's credit risk. And kind of like you were alluding to, if the bank's you know, tighten up or lock up and don't give loans, then, you know, that could add some downward pricing pressure. With that said, the agencies and Fannie, Freddie have been pretty active and they've actually been getting more aggressive in terms of trying to be competitive. And they've come up with some new loan products this year to try to keep things moving. And even during the, you know, the great financial crisis, they stayed active during COVID. They stayed active when everyone else shut down. So, yeah, I'd say those that, that you know those are the risks, the rates and the credit markets are the biggest risks. Yeah, and I mean, I was kind of alluding to this at the beginning of the show is that I think that the office, you know, the pending wave of office defaults, and to your point, you know, stuff selling at you know thirty cents on the dollar, and you've got leases coming due, like that's all going to end up with the banks, right? Like they're going to you know, the, the equity's gone, the keys are going back to the oh, banks. Yeah. And it's that, right? Like it's when the banks have this stuff on their balance sheet is when they're in trouble, right? And they're saying like, hey, I got to get it off. And like, you know, there really is, there's all kinds of weird regulations and rules, but like banks can't own real estate for very long and they got to get it off right. and they're going to have to sell it at whatever they can sell it for to move it. And that price ain't going to be better. <laughs> no. And, and the office problem is not going away anytime soon uh, because of the way those leases are structured. You got a lot of zombie offices right now where the tenant is, you know, they signed a seven-year lease four years ago. That's right. They're not there. They're, they're, everyone's working from home and it's vacant, but the tenant's still going to pay that lease for three more years. And then they're not going to renew it. That's so right. vacancy in office is going to continue to trend up. And even if interest rates come way down in 2024, it's not going to solve the vacancy problem. It might take a little pressure off on the debt side. So the off the turmoil in the office market is going, in my opinion, is going to be affecting us for years to come. Yep. And, you know, who knows really what the true result of that is, but that's not going to be quickly resolved. Yeah. It, I mean, I kind of look at it as this like massive but wide tsunami that's coming yeah. at us and yep. it's just going to keep coming, you know, and it's like it's not going to let go because, you know, as you mentioned, like these leases, they're longer term, right? And they just, when they start, you know, 
coming up for renewal, they just won't be renewed. So therefore, like all these zombie office spaces are just going to continue to be a problem because it's like, finally, the lease is done. These guys are saying I'm out. I'm not paying for office lease anymore. And then like the effective rate on that office is zero, <laughs> zero cash flow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. doesn't matter what the cap rate is if the NOI isn't zero. So. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that we talk about on office and we're kind of beating this one a little bit on the show, but you know, office was always the darling of commercial real estate. That's where the big money went. The valuations mm. were generally the highest in the market. So, you know, the square foot of office is more than multifamily, more than industrial, all of those things right in the stack. So even all these folks that are out there raising funds for you know conversions, office conversion to resi, you know, storage, whatever. That's hard to do. It is super hard to do, especially when the starting balance is higher then your after value, your valuation yeah. afterwards. So like the discount that these things are going to have to go for 20, 30 cents on the dollar just to have a shot at doing a conversion. And like, that's a big valuation drop for the entire real estate market. So yes, while multifamily is like the fundamentals are strong, the office fundamentals are terrible right now. And I think that it's going to, it's going to impact all of you know commercial real estate for a while. So I think that's a great point. Well, Andrew, I think one of the things I want to talk about now is existing deals in the marketplace, right? So we talked about bridge loans and the short-term debt that's all coming due. And you've got newer syndicators that have purchased in the past, you know, call it two years. They're going to be in trouble coming forward, right? And the point, you know, one of the points that's interesting is that these bridge loans and this cheaper debt and this kind of three to five year cycle, that was the playbook right? For newer syndicators. Yeah. And I mean, that's what coaches were telling people to go do. And that's how you did it because they, for the longest time, it was over a decade, the whole market was rising, right? The tide was coming in and like nobody could do any wrong. And all of a sudden there's, there's going to become a reckoning. So for the listeners out there that are one already in investments and they're starting to see one, the distributions have already dried up. And then two, you know, the potential for capital calls, like what's your advice? What do you think about that? Yeah, that that's a tough one because I've already seen a handful of situations where deals have gone bad and all the equity was lost. And in one situation where multiple deals went bad and the sponsor ended up just fleeing the country. But, you know, I would say if you're in a deal that gets a capital call, there's a handful of things to evaluate because the question is what you're trying to determine is, OK, will this money additional money save my existing capital so that you know three five seven years down the road i get my capital back and hopefully this is a successful investment or am i throwing good money after bad and it can be a little bit tough to figure that out but it the things you want to look at is number one you know, whoever the operator is, what does the rest of their portfolio look like? You know, are actual operations doing really well and the problem is related solely to the debt? Meaning if you can solve the debt problem, the property itself is still a good investment. And again, five years from now, it will be worth holding on to. That's, that is something to consider. And it indicates, okay, it might be worth putting capital into this deal. I do know sponsors that are doing cash in refinances right now where they've got a great asset. It's in a good location. It's performing well, but, you know, interest rates doubled. And so they're refinancing and they're doing capital calls or in some cases putting in their own money, you know, putting in $5 million to be able to refinance and to fix debt because they know, hey, 
five years from now, this thing is still going to be profitable. So I would look at your sponsor and evaluate, you know, how is it or find out because you're probably going to have to dig a little bit and ask them, how is the rest of their portfolio doing? How is the asset you're invested in doing? What are the long-term prospects for it? And, you know, how long can they hold it? You know, does the operator have the liquidity and the capability to add capital if necessary? And, you know, and basically start there. If it's a situation where, you know, cash flow is negative because the debt payment has doubled and they're raising capital just to be able to make the mortgage payment for six months, then the question becomes, well, what happens in six months? Does it just get foreclosed on and everything's gone? In that case, uh, you know, I might hesitate on meeting that capital call. So it's really kind of, it comes down to the skills and the ability of the operator, the quality of the asset, and is that extra money just buying time to hope and pray? Or does that extra money actually you know, provide for an exit. So, you know, like I mentioned in the example of, I know some operators who have been doing a capital call so that they can get the extra cash needed to go ahead and refinance into a better loan. That is a legitimate reason to capital call because they're not just pushing the problem off down the road and hoping and praying it gets better. They're saying, all right, we're going to address this now we're going to get out of this bad loan. We're going to need some extra capital to do it, but it preserves the asset so that we can hold it and five years later or whatever, you know, sell out a profit. So those are some of the things that I would evaluate when considering or addressing capital calls. Yeah, well, let's talk about communication, right? Because I think that's such a key yeah. aspect of the relationship is that, you know, we've all probably been in a situation where we got some bad news and we were just kind of hoping we could work through it. And, you know, like, I'll tell you, you know, like, I'll tell you, we'll laugh about this later. I'll tell you how rough this was for a hot second. But I think the communication aspect, especially from operators and sponsors is so critical. What would mm -hmm. you be looking for from communication to, I mean, to get you to a place where you feel good about it? Yeah. And, you know, the, and for any sponsors who are listening to the number one red flag is when communication stops. And, you know, kind of what happens is a lot of sponsors get to the point where, okay, I don't have any good news or I got bad news, so I just don't want to say anything. Well, it's just human nature that people, when you don't get information and you don't have communication, it's human nature to kind of fill the vacuum with the worst case scenario. So people are going to assume the worst. So just for that reason... You know, as a sponsor, you want to keep up communication. But, you know, generally, I, you know, I would say at the minimum, if you're an LP, you want to you want to see the same level of communication that you were getting before. Hopefully it's fully transparent communication of, hey, you know, you know, our debt cost has doubled. We, you know, the loan is due in 14 months. Here's the Here's the exits that we're considering. We're not sure which one's gonna, you know, gonna happen, but we just want to keep everyone updated. Even better is if the situation's getting dire, the frequency of communication even increases. But definitely a red flag is when the sponsor goes dark and the communication ceases or decreases. In that situation, that's another time that I would probably be very hesitant to meet a capital call because usually the 
when communication goes downhill, that's usually the kind of the first leading indicator that everything else is about to go downhill. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You might be surprised to hear this, but I've had a lot of conversations with sponsors on this podcast. And (laughs) one of the things that that comes up a lot, and a lot of these are actually off camera, off podcast while we're chatting, is that most sponsors always initially underestimate the requirements and the communications that are needed, right? Because like staying in touch with your do it right. Yeah, exactly. And I think most people think, hey, we went out and raised this fund. We've got it. It's kicking. Everything is fine. And to your point is that like when it's quiet, people assume the worst. And I know a lot Mm -hmm. of sponsors that are like, man, we had to dig out of that to be like, no, everything's fine. Like there's just really nothing, you know, we wanted to share, like everything was going to plan, but you know, people need to be communicated with. And then like the other thing is that when things go bad or not to plan and that, you know, even going back before, you know, kind of this market that we're in now is that there are months where weird things happen. Right. And oh, like, yeah. you've got to communicate and there might be like, Hey, we've got to pause distributions because like, you know, a car drove through our lobby and right. We haven't been able to lease a unit while we're doing that an insurance. Three times. Right. <laughs> These things happen. And it's like, let's just, you know, communicate that. But people, you know, tend to be like, okay, well, we'll everything will be fine. You'll get your distributions and it's good. But like when these things catch up and it's six months down the road and you're like, wait, you could have, you knew about this six months ago? Mm-hmm. Like that's, that that's harsh. And like even great sponsors that I, I would, you know, always invest with have learned that lesson the hard way. So if you've been getting decent communications and you're not getting any, or like you're not getting that full transparency. And I think that's the key, right? Is in this market, if you're listening to this show, like you, you understand that there are challenges. Like the debt market is a massive challenge. The valuations of these properties is a massive challenge. Like even if you've been running it great and you've got cash flow and you're yeah. going to refinance it, the bank's going to look at it and be like, hey, the valuation's not where we were. And we're, you know, we're tightening our belts and we're looking at it differently. Like those are all real challenges that every sponsor out there is dealing with right now. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if you invested with a sponsor who stopped distributions because of a, you know, floating rate bridge loan, that does not automatically mean they're a bad sponsor or they're fraudulent or they don't know what they're doing because nobody, absolutely nobody was predicting or anticipating rates to go up this much this quickly. In early 2022, if you looked at the forward rate curve, it was predicting a 50 basis point increase in the next 12 months. We ended up with 500. This was a shock to, you know, operators, the entire banking system. I mean, that that's part of why, I mean, you know, SVB did a lot of things wrong. But, you know, one of the reasons they failed is just because they weren't anticipating like a 500 basis point increase in the federal funds rate. So just because an operator has stopped distributions because they're having trouble with a bridge loan doesn't mean they're a bad operator. But that's why I was saying before, you've got to look at the global picture. Is every asset they have over leveraged and in trouble? Or is it just, you know, hey, they're good operators, but they got some debt issues that are short term and is a solution. So just because you know, they got a floating rate loan and distributions are stopped. Doesn't, you know, doesn't mean it's an automatic fail. But if you start seeing some of the other things that we mentioned about, 
you know, communication drops off or, you know, you feel like there's a sense of lack of transparency, that's the time to be concerned. And I've got one other thought that I want to run by you and just get your take on it is that especially for newer syndicators, you know, a lot of the business kind of runs on acquisition fees, right? So doing a deal. So one of the things that I would be looking for is, you know, if, if I'm working with somebody that's got a deal, it's potentially in a capital call situation. And I see that they're aggressively trying to raise money for another deal. I would want to understand like the nuances of that deal as well. Is so like you don't get yourself into, I mean, look, guys, this is how it works, right? Like sometimes you get yourself in a little bit of a pinch and the next deal can like take the pressure off for a second. But this isn't the market where it's like, yeah, I just made a bad decision. Like the whole market's kind of wonky right now. So yeah. What are your thoughts on that? You know, that's actually, I've never heard anyone bring that up. That's a really good point. You know, because I have seen some deals come across in the last month or two in my inbox that are, you know, being very aggressively pitched that, you know, I think that gets back to kind of looking at the sponsor that you're with in a global sense. You know, are they doing a deal because they can even not, you know, they should be, are they doing deals because they can and not because they should, right? So yeah, if they're aggressively pitching another deal, you'll take a look at that deal and say, okay, you know, is this truly a good deal or is this just being done, like you said, to kind of, kind of relieve some pressure. And it could be either one. I mean, there, there are still good deals being done, especially with by sponsors who have, you know, good relationship and, and some adaptability. But if you've got a sponsor with eight properties and seven of them are doing capital calls and then they're aggressively pitching this new great deal, yeah, it might be worth looking into a little bit further. Yeah. I mean, I think about going back into my flipping days and there were times where you do a deal and like you get in, you pull the wall apart and you're like, uh oh, like this is did not come up on any inspections. Like this isn't a great deal. Like I just got, I got to keep moving. Right. Like I'm going to get through this one. Maybe I'll sell it at a loss, but I got to keep going, but I can always get the next deal. Right. But the thing about Resi, which is not synonymous with commercial is that the commercial stuff is based off of cash flows, right? And you're doing it yeah. off of NOI, not ver not based off of like, you know, some market value of a residential comp. I could fix a lot of issues by saying like, yeah, I've always got a handful of deals working. And like, if one of them goes sideways, I'll be fine, right? I've got another one right behind it that'll work. But in this market, there is no like magic pill where somebody is like magically getting some great deal that's at a bargain basement that they're going to, you know, massively have this huge equity slug that comes to them. That's not the market today. right? So you well, yeah. And then kind of like you said, when you're in single family, you know, you got to, you know, out of five flips, one goes bad and four are good. It all kind of averages out and you're fine. Well, if you're syndicating multifamily, each one of those deals is its own separate thing. You can't that's just right. say, well, this one's doing great. So I'll take some money from here. No, that's a different set of investors. So every, unless you're investing in a fund, which has its own pros and cons, you know, you really got to evaluate each deal separately because they stand alone. And then, you know, you're asking earlier about, you know, new deals. It kind of also gets in the question of like, if someone has a portfolio that the entire portfolio or close to it is under duress, how much focus and energy and bandwidth is available for this new deal? Or is that new deal going to be replacing these ones that are, you know, in distress? And so, you know, there's only so much bandwidth, right? In a tent. So that's another factor to consider. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. Like when, 
you know, the other, I guess, dirty little secret is aside from the acquisition fees that, you know, syndicators make their money on the back end, right? Like you do all the work and you earn it. And then when you actually exit, like that's where most of it comes from. You don't want to be the one that's like, well, on to the next deal, right? (laughs) Well, no, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it's funny, you know, sometimes you hear people talk about, oh, what's the fee or 1% asset management fee or whatever, acquisition fee or whatever. Candidly, that stuff just kind of pays the bills. You know, as a sponsor, you're not really making big gains until you actually sell and you sell successfully. So, you know, if someone, a sponsor with a, an entire portfolio that's looking at zero profit upon sale, that's not a sustainable situation in many cases. So. Yeah, I don't think that's a sustainable situation, period, right? Because like nobody can afford to work for free in perpetuity. And, right. those, and really, I think what we're really discussing here, are just like some red flags, like it's a weird market. Yep. And you need some indicators, some leading indicators to say like, hey, I should dig in a little bit on this because you're, you are right, is that the fundamentals of multifamily are very strong right now. We are in a housing shortage. The builders are not building right now. The fundamentals are strong. Multifamily is in a good spot. The market is weird and that's an issue. And as you look at deals, you know, you've got to look at what is the incentive for the sponsor you're working with? What are the things, what are some potential red flags that can say, hey, it's not worth, you know, putting more money into it. And then on the flip side, like you said, like, because these deals can still be very strong and you just have to refinance it, put some more cash in, preserve your equity, like those could be great deals. And that like that money will come back to you. It's equity, right? It's not like you're necessarily going in at debt rates, right? Like it it could actually be great, but you got to be thoughtful. Yeah. And, you know, with inflation and everything, I would be very surprised if apartment valuations five to 10 years from now are not significantly higher than they are today. Right. I mean, try to think of a property that if you bought 20 years ago, you would regret having it today. Not very many. You can come up. Okay, maybe that office tower in San Francisco. But other than that, you know, you, you buy the right pro- asset or invest in the right asset in the right, right location, either yourself or with a good operator. Time is on your side, and so you know, if, if you get a long enough horizon. I really, I still am a big believer that multifamily is going to work out quite well. Yeah, and I think maybe even taking that to the next level is that. We say this a lot on the show is that real wealth is built in the downturns, right? Because oh, of yeah. this massive, you know, kind of catch up as the market like kind of turns around and then starts to ramp back up. You know, the players, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of folks that you see stretch themselves in these markets. And to your point, 20 years down the road, I mean, you're just like, I was such an idiot, right? Like, why did I not do that? Like, why? Like, they were telling oh. me, you know, like, it, like, and we're talking like life-changing events because yeah, was like, I mean, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> there, there's, I can think there's one property in particular that really sticks out in my mind during the great financial, you know, in the aftermath of the great financial crisis. So this is 2011 or 12 or something like that. It was a B-class apartment complex. We missed it by $500 a unit, right? The seller had a loan he had to pay off. And I think he wanted, he needed like 24000 a unit. And we were like, nope, we're no more than 23.5, right? If we own that property today, it would still be 125 a unit. 
And, you know, back then it was, you know, everyone, we were in the great you know, aftermath of the great financial crisis. Everyone's scared of real estate. We were being like super careful and rightfully so. But yeah, we missed it by $500 a unit and we missed out on, you know, 100000 a unit. So as long as you, you know, again, right asset, right place, operate it well, hold it long enough. Generally, you don't regret buying that. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, folks, that's where we are right now, right? We're in a spot where things seem to be starting to settle out. Like you should actually, there, there should be some excitement of saying like, okay, hey, things are normalizing. Still got to do your d- due diligence, right? You got to be with the right person. You got to have a good plan. Like debt is still ridiculously expensive. You're having to put, you know, the debt rates are high, more equities having to go into deals. So it's, lo- it's going to look different right now than it did a year and a half ago. Your cash flow expectations should be different, but the equity upside could be massive. And I think you just need to be, you know, if you can get your mind right, like, and you're ready, these deals are out there and they're coming. You know, and the one other thing I'd like to add is probably 99.8% of the people listening are aware and know the Warren Buffett quote of, you know, buy when everyone is fearful and actually, no, that's what, it'd be greedy when everyone else is fearful and fearful when everyone else is greedy, right? Well, everyone knows that. But the reason that it works is because no one can actually put it into action, right? Because when things get scary or and everybody's fearful, we all rationalize why we shouldn't buy. And, you know, that's what you saw in 2010, 11 and 12, like apart, great apartment deals were just like littered all over the ground. You just walk around and you just pick them up. And that was a time to be greedy when everyone was fearful. In 2020 and 21, everybody was, in a sense, being greedy. Like the demand that for apartments was insatiable. I mean, prices went up dramatically. You know, properties would get 30 offers. That was people being greedy when they should have been fearful. And so as a buyer, that was the time to be fearful because everyone else is being greedy. We're now getting back to the situation of everybody is fearful. So that means as a buyer, as an investor, it is a time to be cautiously greedy. I think the real opportunities are probably still six, 12 months down the road. But candidly, we're excited. We're actually hiring people to increase our bandwidth so that we can hopefully take advantage of some great deals coming up here soon. I agree. I think it's I think it's coming. I think it's not quite here yet. But you know, the pricing differential that you've already you know indicated on the show, like we're soon starting to see it. And I think that's exciting. And I think that, you know, to your point, 20 years down the road. There'll be some buys right now that are going to change people's lives. Like we're not talking mm-hmm. about the, you know, yeah, I got my 10 to 15% return. We're talking about life changing. You know, you look like a genius <laughs> yeah, <laughs> type <yeah>. of deals. <laughs> and like those, those are coming. So there, there is room to be excited. But Andrew, I like to end every show with gratitude, right? Because somebody helped you out, gave you a chance, probably when you didn't really deserve it, but they liked you. And I'd like to give you a chance to, give somebody a public or a couple someone's a public shout out, say thank you. Yeah, you know, I'll say two of my early mentors, Mike Ballard and Tim Rode, wouldn't be here without them. And actually, I mean, met those guys uh, over a decade ago and uh, we'll, we're still partners and friends today. So uh, yeah, wouldn't be here without them. Well, Mike and Tim, I hope you you hear this. Andrew, this has been a great show. 
I really love the conversation. I think there's you know a lot to learn here and a lot to be excited about. But thank you for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and I'd actually love for you to contribute to a future episode. If you have a question you'd like answered or a topic or a guest to bring on the show, please email me at jake at thelimitedpartner.com. Now I realize there's a lot of lingo that's thrown around on these shows, so I've created a cheat sheet for you with the top 26 terms that come up most often. Head on over to thelimitedpartner.com forward slash lingo for the list. Enjoy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.